0: We have made it in Acts chapter 2 to the point where now we have the mission of Jesus given to the apostles in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 when he said, I want you to go be witnesses of me, of my resurrection, of who I am, uh, starting in your hometown and working your way out incrementally through the rest of the world. We see this mission beginning to take shape, and it's finally reaching some people. Peter has just finished preaching with the other 11, the resurrection of Jesus. And non-believers in Christ are now becoming believers in Christ. And what we see forming in front of us in Acts chapter 2 is what the beginnings of what we were going to call church. The church is being formed. Other people outside of the original group, other people that expand beyond just the 12 apostles and then those close associates that were with them, other people are now being brought into this mission. It's being called a church. And what Luke does for us here in Acts chapter 2 is really, really great for us. He gives us insight, not just into the mechanics or not just into the message, but into the people's lives and he lets us ask some serious questions like who are these people of this mission? What do they look like? What do they act like? What do they do? What kind of people are they once the mission once the mission comes to them and they partake in it as well? It also will give us a great opportunity this morning to ask ourselves a very sobering question. Do we actually look like these people? Um, One of the sort of uh, phrases that we like to say around here is that we are, uh, you know, people of the book. We like to be the church of the New Testament. And as we read the very first church found in the New Testament, it's probably a good time for us to look at ourselves, look in the mirror and say, do we look like, act like, are we like these people? In Acts chapter 2, this section that Trevor read for us, we're going to see a few things about these people that I want to share with you from Acts 2. Um, in hopes that we might reflect and say, are we like these people in response to the gospel becoming the church? And we're going to see that these people, four kind of key characteristics about these people stand out to me. Number one, we see that they are a people that have a mind that is convicted. They are a people, number two, that have a soul that cherishes. Number three, they are people that have a heart that is connected. And four, They have a life that's in communion. You can tell we've got a lot to do, so let's do it quickly. Number one, they are a people that have a mind that is in conviction. Look in verse 42. There's one word that stands out. At the very beginning, uh, you see several different things that they're doing. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. But the one word that stands out at the very beginning is that these people were devoted to this. That means in spite of difficulty, in spite of challenges, in spite of obstacles and hurdles, they were going to persist in these things. The apostles' doctrine, the teaching of the apostles, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and of prayer. Regardless of what was going to come to them or what difficulties they might face, they were going to be people that were resolved to practice these core principles amongst them as a group. They faced a lot of challenges very early. In that very moment, these were people that were from out of town, they weren't from there. So they had limited resources, they had limited time, they had limited space, there were 3,000 added to them. And I'm not sure there was houses big enough to hold 3,000 at this time. And so they had a lot of obstacles, but none of those obstacles made the apostles and this first group called church look at each other and say, I just don't think we're going to be able to continue steadfastly in learning from the apostles and fellowshipping and breaking of bread and even prayer. This is just going to be too difficult. And for you, I don't know if you're like me, but my question then comes to this. Where did this first church, this group of people, develop such steadfastness? Where did they find the ability to develop this kind of devotion? Where did it come from? And I think we find our answer back in verse 37. When we see that after hearing the message of the gospel, when when Peter finishes so emphatically saying that Jesus, who you crucified, is the Lord of the world and the Savior of the world. In verse 37, it says that these people who heard this were cut to the heart. These people were pierced in their heart. They weren't pricked in their mind. They weren't rubbed wrong in their conscience. They were cut deeply to their heart. What he's trying to get at, that phrase, it's kind of a, um, you know, just a catchphrase, cut to the heart. What the author Luke is trying to get at is that these people were struck to their very core with this message. A message that struck them so deep that they literally can't shake it out of them. You see, what started in their conversion shows up in their daily practice. The conviction by which we come to Christ will be the very thing that establishes our continued dedication. If we come to Christ with lukewarm, half-hearted conviction, like, yeah, this is probably right. i got nothing else to do. Uh, I see a lot of people I like in this church, and getting baptized at least gets me a free Bible. That's pretty cool. Um, I might as well come along, and I don't want to miss out on communion anymore. This, that seems pretty neat, and you know, going to hell signs kind of bad, so eh, I'll give this thing a try. The conviction of which you bring to Christ will drive the devotion you have in Christ. Now, here's the thing. If you find yourself lacking in steadfastness, sitting under the apostles' teaching, worshiping, Fellowship in connecting with your brothers and sisters, praying. If you find yourself lacking in this steadfastness, return to your conversion. Return to it. If you find yourself in your conversion that you had conviction, find fuel from that conviction to drive you once again afresh. But if you look back and you find that maybe you lack some conviction, maybe it was half-hearted, maybe you were a little bit disinterested, maybe a little bit um, lacking some genuineness, In this moment now is the opportunity for you to sit in the depths of the gospel and let it drive your faith. Let it drive your faith. The gospel message that Peter presented that day struck these people to their very core. And there was no doubt about the fact that Peter took them from the depths of their sin to the heights of Christ's victory. And that range of message that their depths of their sin and the heights of Christ's victory was such an overwhelming message that had struck them to the core. And that conviction drove their steadfastness. So these people, number one, had a mind of conviction. I pray that we will as well here. Number two, I'm saying that they had a soul that cherished something. Look in verse 43 now. That was 42. Look in 43. Trevor, I think, read from the New King James where he says that these people had fear. Um, some of you may have a little footnote in your Bible next to that word Fear. Uh, It is the word phobos, fear, where we get phobia. And it it comes around the idea that these people had awe. They were trembling. You see, out of this deep conviction, there was a group that was formed. That day when Peter and the 11 preached, there were more than 3,000 that heard them, but there were 3,000 that were struck to the core with the message. And that deep conviction formed a group. And the distinguishing factor of that group was this. Every... Soul was in awe, trembling to the core. As I mentioned back in verse 36 when Peter said that you crucified Jesus and He is now the risen sovereign King and Savior. That brought them uh, great reverence. You know, the most powerful factor that binds people together is a common object of worship that 's one of the most powerful things that can bring people together. You and I can come together on a lot of different reasons. We might even have you know political affiliations that bring us together or maybe a career where we work in the same field. We might share other things that bring us together. But when we share a common object of worship that is the most powerful form of union. you think i 'm not saying the truth. Go to like the Ohio State football game and find people, 100,000 people that share a common zeal. You know, that's where the word fan comes from. What's fan short for? Come on. Fanatic. Fanatic. You know what fanatic means? I'll tell you. I'm glad you asked. A person with excessive single-minded zeal. That's what a fanatic is. And we um, lovingly call people fans, right? Which they act like fanatics sometimes, sometimes just maniacs. But um, really what you see in our sports culture, this is not a downer on sports, I love sports, I watch sports, but what you see in our sports culture is the galvanizing effect of single-minded worship. People, races, cultures, ethnicities, ages, just, just barriers gone, right? At the thought of coming together to celebrate one single thing. That's what it is. This group had found the one thing all of our hearts really long to worship. The thing we were designed to worship. You see, Peter said there's two things about him. He's the true king. The one thing, the one power... The one thing you and I were designed to adore and be in awe of. We're all um, in awe of different things or things that are majestic to us. But the one thing, the one person that is to make us tremble in our boots, shake, and just be in awe of who he is, Jesus. And at the same time, he's not just this demanding, overwhelming power. He's the true savior. He's the one who delivers on our deepest needs. The ultimate power that causes us to tremble. The ultimate deliverer of our deepest needs. That's who Jesus is. And you see the secret of these 3,000 people were. They learned what our hearts were ultimately designed to worship. And with zeal. You might have called them fans. Fanatics right. Of Jesus. With single minded excessive zeal. They found their worship. And each one of them had awe. And when this object of worship is shared. It makes people buy into the mission. It develops them. And I pray that we will have that here as well. Thirdly, let's look at this. They they had a mind of conviction. They were devoted. They had a soul that cherished. They worshipped. They had a heart that was connected to each other. 44 through 46, what we see here is the the phrase fellowship. You see in verse 42, they were devoted to fellowship. This group was committed. Now, um, if you've been around church a little while, you probably know like the Greek word that has to do with fellowship. It's called koinonia. Most of you may have heard that. Um, That word just means to have something based on something in common, to have something in common. And so you can have koinonia. You can have fellowship um, on a lot of different shared things. You can have a shared experience. Our group that a few months ago went to Nashville, uh, Tennessee to do a mission trip, have koinonia based upon that shared experience. They come back, they have inside jokes, they have things they're talking about, and I didn't get to go, so I don't have that kind of koinonia with them. Uh, or we had a few that went to West Virginia that shared in that experience. So shared experience can create koinonia. Or you might have people that, share an alum, that, that are alumnus of a particular college or high school. You know, th- that shared sort of college gives them connection, right? Or you might have people that share a hometown, immediately connect. Uh, maybe even share like a team, a sports team that connect. All of these things are versions of koinonia, a fellowship. But here's what Luke does for us. You see, he takes this koinonia idea. Uh, Luke two forty, I'm sorry, Acts two forty two. They were devoted to fellowship. But he presses us a little bit farther. You see. Uh, I should have given you. This is a fair warning. I'm going to press you a little bit here, okay? I'm going to press me uh, to some discomfort. This is more than potluck fellowship. Now, Luke has no problem with food. In fact, he tells us that they ate food together, so no problem with food. But Luke explains their fellowship in verses 44 and 45. And it gets beyond our comfortable donuts and juice and coffee together. It gets way beyond that. You see, there's a phrase in verse 44 that really explains what fellowship is. Not just food and hanging out until we're tired, but real fellowship. In verse 44, at the end of this, he says, all who believed and were together, and here's the phrase, they had all things in common. And when he says things, he doesn't just mean beliefs. He doesn't just mean the same sports team. He doesn't just mean the same hometown because they don't have those things. When he says things, he means, like you and I say, things, they're stuff. They had all things in common. Now this phrase, all things in common, spoiler alert, do you know what that word is in the Greek? Koino, where we get koinonia, all things in common. And what's strange about the use of this word for Luke is this. The word koino, when they would use that word common, was used for Jews to describe things that were unclean that were common, that were not to be used in the temple. That's where that word comes from, koino. And what he was saying is, when the, the way that they would use this for the Jews was this. Um, these things are just, they're not sacred. They can be used by anybody at any time, in any place. They're not reserved for just a special group of people. They're not reserved for a special place. These things that are common, that are koina, can be used anywhere at any time. And then he says, we having koinonia, We have all things in common. The things we possess when we come into fellowship become common, available for the shared goal. You see, here's what Luke's pressing on us. He's pressing on me very much. Being a Christian has impact on how you view possessions in life. Go back and look at Luke. Luke is taking note of this. He realizes that Jesus talked a lot about possessions. Talked about money more than almost any other subject in the Bible. He realized Jesus talked about possessions, so Luke is telling us about possessions. You know, Luke is the only, the only writer of the gospel that tells us the story of the Good Samaritan. What did that guy use? His stuff, right? He's the only one that tells us about the rich fool who tore down his barns to build bigger barns to keep his stuff for him. He's the only one that tells us about the rich young, or not not the young ruler, but he's the only one that tells us the story that you and I should host people for dinner that don't have the ability to pay us back. You see, what Luke is saying is don't let your possessions possess you. That's not where you find life. You don't have life in gaining and gathering all your possessions to hoard for yourself. You won't find life in that. You find life in fellowship, first with God and then with others. And the guide is this in verse 45 with this fellowship. Because you can see, you know I, know, I know counterpoints have been made to this. Yes, people maintain their homes. You didn't just sell everything you have and we just dump it into a pile and we all live in tents around each other. That's not what happened. That's not what happened. But here, here's the guide in verse 45. He says, in, uh, they were selling their possessions. Yes, they were and belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. What was happening in this group because of a deep commitment to Jesus Christ was they were forming a culture inside of the culture. They were forming a city amongst the city in which the people of that city, the people of that culture, took care of each other. When needs were were known, needs were met. And they did not let brothers or sisters go without in their culture, in their community of the church. And here's how this becomes powerful. The church was not designed just to be a civic organization. It was designed to be a counterculture to the world. It was designed to be a city on the hill. That's what it was designed to be. And when this community, here, us, takes care of each other this way, it's magnetizing. It brings people to us. Say, Wow, look at these people. When they're here, They take care of each other. So and so's car's broken down, and this guy's a mechanic, and we've got some money here. We're going to help them get their car going. And this person is having trouble getting some food this week. No way they're not going to be hungry this week. We take care of our people. And that draws those from the outside saying, Wow, look at those people. I'd love to be a part of that. And it draws them in. These people had a heart that was connected, so they had a mind of conviction a soul that cherished, a heart that was connected, and finally they had a life that was in communion. When I say communion, I don't just mean what we did at the table. The word communion was applied to the table because the word communion means to share and exchange with intimacy. And that's what we do at the table. This is really partaking of the Lord's Supper. We call it communion because we're communing in intimacy with Jesus and with each other. And you see, these people in verse 47 had a life now built around the idea of communion. They had communion with each other, as I've just talked about in verses 44 through 46, but they also now had a communion with God. One like these Jews have never seen before. And verse 47 says they were praising God. And let me tell you something. These Jews were praising God like they had never praised Him before. Hebrews 10 gives us a little bit of insight into the worship of a Jew where he says year by year, they would have to bring sacrifices to the, to the offering so that they could be made right. And in Hebrews 10, it says, those who brought those sacrifices could never be made perfect. They were always reminded in the giving of their sacrifices of their sin. Under the old law, under the law of Moses, every time that a person brought a sacrifice to worship, they were reminded not, just, not, not only of God's greatness, but they were reminded of their own sin. Year after year. And all of a sudden, in the message of Jesus, Peter says to them, it is finished. The Old Testament law, sacrificial, sacrificial system is done. And that's why Hebrews says, those who have the sacrifice of Jesus can now draw near to the throne of grace. Be made perfect. You think these Jews that have given their lives to year after year coming to the temple, bringing offerings, bringing sacrifices, reminded constantly of their sin, and all of a sudden they've been told there's been an offering of a sacrifice that takes all those sacrifices and they're done. You don't have to do it anymore. This one sacrifice has been offered, and he's enough for yesterday, today, and forever. You think they worship with some energy after that? Thank you, God. For an offering that cleanses me and makes me perfect for all eternity. Wow. So they now have a whole new way to praise. They have communion with each other, communion with God. But lastly, if you notice this little phrase in verse 47. Praising God and having favor with the people. You see, they actually had communion with those that were around them to a certain degree. Not the way that they could have with God intimately not just the way that they could have with the church, but belonging to Jesus Christ, inclusion with Christ, does not automatically demand exclusion from all people that are not of Christ. That's not what the Bible teaches. That that once we come into faith, once we come into the church, we then excommunicate the world. That's not what the Bible teaches. We come into the body of Christ to be filled up with His love to be energized by His people, to be sent out to the world. These people had favor with those around them because they were bringing probably great joy, great blessing. They brought a whole new way to engage with the world. They were going out into the world, not like everybody else saying, how can I get mine? How can I be selfish? How can I take advantage? They went out into the world and said, how can I serve? How can I give? What do you need? They were blessed To be a blessing like God did with Abraham. They were blessed by this message. They were blessed by this community. And now they've become a blessing in the society in which they live. You see, if we're going to be the people of the mission, what we're talking about today, the forming of these people that become the people of the mission, it's going to be vital that we actually live the heartbeat of the mission. You see, the most powerful way for us to communicate the gospel is actually not through our articulation but through our demonstration that's the most powerful way for us to do this how do i know that to be true because that was god's first way at the cross when jesus was there hanging you know there are a lot of events that took place there was an earthquake the earth was dark and in matthew 27 when the earth shook when the event was happening, no words were said. The centurion stood there, felt the, the ground beneath his feet shake, and he looked up at the cross and he said, Surely this was the Son of God. The events of the day, the actions of God, convinced him that this was God's Son. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says that while we were still sinners, God demonstrated his love towards us in sending Jesus Christ. You see, at the cross, the message of the cross can be understood even without those seven phrases from Jesus on the cross. Those are powerful and mighty and great insight. But you can look at the event of the cross. It can be demonstrated to you. And in observing that cross, you can understand the message that God is a God of justice, that yes, He punishes sin, so my sin put Jesus on the cross. God didn't brush it under the rug. He held my sin accountable and He was just. But at the same time, He offered Himself to be the justifier of those that would come to Jesus by faith. I can learn that by observing the cross. And it's not just in the cross that I see this happening, but it's also in resurrection. In the resurrection of Jesus, it becomes clear that something has changed. Something is different. Life is not like it was anymore. And so as I observe the demonstration of the cross, the demonstration of the burial, and knowing the demonstration of His resurrection, I now know that I too can be resurrected. As Jesus was raised from the grave, I can be raised from a life of sin. And so you and I here today want to make sure first and foremost that we are participating in this great resurrection of jesus that gives us a mind of conviction a soul that will cherish a heart that will be connected and a life that can be in communion and i pray that you and i you and i as the church here will be letting the resurrection of jesus from the grave empower our resurrection so that we can live the mission we were made to live and helping other people see the glory of god and his greatness for their good if you don't have that access right now, if you haven't been connected to Jesus Christ, if your sin still weighs on you, you haven't let Jesus take that from you, we're always available to make sure that can get taken care of. Let's stand in sin.